Good afternoon. Hello. Welcome to the JB Font channel. My name is James Fontleroy. I am your host. It is so good to see you on this afternoon, December 13th, 2022. Just to let you guys know, the JB Font channel is available on all major podcast platforms like Anchor, Apple, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. So you subscribe, subscribe to me there. I'm also part of the Revolutionary Blackout Network. So you can also see me on the JB shows on Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, RBN Live on Tuesdays at 4, and the Saturday and JB Show on Thursdays at 6. Please make sure to give this video a thumbs up. And if you please uh, would like to subscribe uh, to my Patreon or my coffee, then those are available in the description as well. Shout out to all the patrons on Patreon and coffee, as well as the members and everyone who sends me mutual aid via different platforms. Without you guys, I would not be able to do this work that I'm doing. So thank you so very much. As per usual, whenever I do have a guest, I want to be respectful of their time. So I will give my shout outs and hellos to everyone in the chat a little bit later. However, uh, that being said, I do want to introduce my special guest. I have with me from Midwestern Marks, Carlos L. Garrido. It's uh, just think about it as burrito, but with a G. That's Garrido. Yeah. Garrido. Okay. Yeah. Is it in, in, in Spanish? Is it pronounced Harido? No, it's a uh, Garrido. Garrido. Okay. Yeah. All right. I'm trying to I'm trying to learn, <laughs> but it's it's so good to see you here. And by the way, I just have to list your 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 credentials before you get to talking. Uh, it, you know, because I'm reading out right out of the Midwestern Marks website says you are a PhD student and instructor in philosophy at Southern Illinois University Carbondale with a master's in philosophy from the same institution. Um, and you are the you are the author of Marxism and the Dialectical Materials Worldview, an anthology of classical Marxist texts on dialectical materialism. So. I am very excited and happy to have you here with me today to discuss various different things, including your journey. And thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me on, Jay. It's a it's a pleasure. Mm -hmm, definitely. Um, so one of the things that I typically ask my guests, one of the first things I, I like to ask is, so that being said, you're an author, commentator, educator, and activist. Can you give us a brief summary of how you got into that and what inspired you to move into this independent media space? Um, well, that's a long story, <laughs> but we got uh, time. <laughs> what 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 in, what inspired me basically to to come to socialism, as I think uh, is the case with most people, is is life. Uh, mm -hmm. Something happens in your life that shocks you, and you. You don't have an answer for it, um, with the exception maybe of like red diaper babies. But uh, for regular people, you you something happens, you you realize your parents are struggling to pay rent or struggling to pay medical bills or uh, for food, and you're like, why why is this happening? You know, I, I go to the grocery store, I see that it that it's packed with food. I uh, for instance, since I, I grew up in Miami, I was born in Cuba, but I grew up in Miami. I would go uh, to the beach and. I would see these massive skyscraper buildings and I'd see like homeless people right next to them. Um, and I knew that a lot of the apartments were empty uh, and, and there were people sleeping outside in the street. So those sorts of interactions 
um, I think are what, what shape people's experiences to end up uh, being open to uh, I, socialist ideas when they end up encountering them. And for me, a, yeah. a really personal one was um, after my mom had my little sister, I was about 10 years old, uh, she ended up developing fibromes within her. And mm -hmm. the doctor told her that if those end up growing, they can pop and, and she can die. Oh, and so no. she was faced with uh, the question of either get this operation and, and end up having the sort of medical debt that's going to weigh down on my family for the rest of uh, my life or, I mean, who knows how long, uh, or, or roll with it and then see what happens. And she rolled with it. Um, she's been thankfully okay. But I remember that when that process of, of thinking about what the next move was, was going on, the same family members and friends who were constantly complaining about Cuba being totalitarian, a, a dictatorship and, and just yeah. the worst evil in the world were the ones telling my mom to go to Cuba to get the operation. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That's, that's so ironic, man. Right. So I, I didn't wow. understand why this uh, quote unquote best country on the planet that has un basically unlimited resources, especially in, in, in medicine, um, yeah. where we spend more than most most the, the next like 10 countries combined is something similar to what we do with military spending. Um, mm -hmm. Why? Why that was the case? Why? Why would they the same people that hate so much on Cuba ask my mom to tell my mom that she should go to Cuba to get the operation? And so questions like that would begin arising. Um, yeah, and yeah. in 2016, I heard Bernie Sanders speak for the first time, uh, yeah. and he was calling out the role of, of private insurance companies and the role of basically profit getting in the middle of uh, beating basic human needs and, and the role that the for-profit uh, system that we have and how it commodifies education, healthcare, basically everything in our life. The role that that plays in in some of the difficulties that are experienced at an individual level and that when they're experienced at, at, an, at an individual level, it's easy for some people to see them as individual problems, but it's, yeah. they're not. They're systemic problems. So I got yeah. involved in 2016 with the, the Bernie campaign, ended up going to, uh, I, was, I was at the beginning of my undergraduate career, I studied philosophy. In philosophy, I was uh, lucky enough to have uh, to be in a, in a school where my philosophy counselor was a Marxist. He was the head of the local DSA. Um, the political science philosophers and sociology, uh, political science professors and sociology professors that I had were also involved in, in DSA. And the whole circles that I uh, navigated around when I was in my undergrad, they were all people that were involved in socialist activism. Um, so in that process, I engaged with Marxism, which takes me, of course, beyond uh, Bernie. Um, I end up still getting in, involved in socialist activism within DSA, within on-campus activities through the, the Young Democratic Socialism of, Amer of America, um, which I want to pin that there because I'll, I'll make a comment uh, later on about that. But um, in 2020, Bernie runs again, and we shift our focus towards campaigning with Bernie. And that meant uh, knocking on thousands of doors in December, January, and February, early February in, in Iowa, um, which I don't know if you're familiar uh, with the sort of weather at that time uh, of the year in the Midwest, but it's uh, it's cold as hell. It's like yeah. 10, 15, 20 degree uh, weather. Yeah. Um, we were going around knocking doors, uh, talking to students, to working class people. And it was in that process where I started to see some of the flaws of the dominant left, which was tied mm -hmm. both to the Bernie movement and to 
the Democratic Socialists of America. In 2019, I had gone to the Socialism Conference uh, in Chicago, and um, one of the things that happened there uh, really disillusioned me, um, which was that there were speakers. This was an event that was hosted by Haymarket Books, by uh, DSA, Jacobin, and all the, the main socialist outlets. There were speakers there that were calling uh, Cuba, Nicaragua, um, China, Venezuela, dictatorships. And not in the way that like us Marxists or Marxist-Leninists call, uh, use the word dictatorships, like a, a dictatorship of, of the working class. Um, they were calling them, you know, uh, authoritarian and all these uh, uh, buzzwords that are used to get people to reject uh, certain socialist experiments. And then we saw a week after uh, Ben Norton and Max Blumenthal published an article showing that those speakers uh, were funded by the NED, uh, the National Endowment for Democracy, and by USAID. Uh, uh, so they were funded basically by two of the modern arms of, of the State Department that are used to promote regime change. And um, so after we experienced that, we changed the YDSA into just like a labor club. And uh, we continued some of the activities that we were doing, but as we roll into the Bernie Sanders organizing, um, we're also able to talk to a variety of people from different backgrounds. And yeah. some of the more liberal assumption assumptions of what like a working class Trump supporter was, um, they were beginning to be removed because we were talking to people and we had this idea that we came with that, you know, everyone that voted for Trump just did it because they were racist. Um, and as we were talking to a lot of these working class folks from working class backgrounds or, or farmer backgrounds in the Midwest, um, we realized that, you know, what what make America great again meant for them was like, make it how it was in the 50s. Um, mm -hmm. They were referring to the material conditions of like their parents being able to just survive with one job. And it was yeah. a time where in the U.S., specifically for the white portion of the working class, it wasn't as true for the black and the brown portion of the working class, but for the white portion of the working class, it was the closest we've been to social democracy. And mm -hmm. there was a strong labor movement. The Soviet Union uh, was uh, at, at one of its uh, peaks and it there was a real threat um, to uh, the ruling class in the US coming from the labor movement from inside and from, from the alternative that people can look at and say, oh, wow, you know, the working class people are in power over there. Mm -hmm. um, so there was a good, decent, a decent standard of living and that's what they were referring to and so from that point of view it was very easy to like re-articulate them to socialism to tell them that trump is just another capitalist <laughs> uh his his yeah. whole he, he's not draining no swamp he is part of uh, the swamp he is part of the same monopoly capitalist class that um that has led to your condition being this bad um so it was very easy to re-articulate those little common sense kernels of thinking critically about the existing order to socialism. And mm -hmm. that led us to a realization, which was that on the one hand, we saw that most socialists were really taking the approach that like Hillary Clinton, uh, comrade Hillary Clinton um, <laughs> to these people, which is that they're just a basket of deplorables. And that's, yeah. a, that's a big mistake because as a Marxist, as a communist, your role is to educate and to elevate people from the erroneous and backwards views that they might have. And if you only, if you make purity the condition for speaking to people, the only people you're ever gonna speak to are communists who think like you. Um, so one of the things that we realize is that what makes someone, what the factor that makes 
people the most likely to accept socialism is not the political party they vote for um, every two years, as the Bernie campaign wanted us to believe. They're only sending us to liberal uh, middle-class neighborhoods that voted Democrat. What, what makes people the most likely to accept socialism is their class position, right? Yeah. It determines the, their objective conditions uh, in their everyday life. And that was something, that was like the sort of second critique that we started beginning to develop of the dominant left in the US. They just wanted to ignore this large swath of worker and just of workers and just scratch them off, scratch them off as either racist or fascist. Mm -hmm. And our everyday experience confirmed that that wasn't the case. We ended up developing within the Bernie, uh, the socialist club that we had that would organize for Bernie. I want to say like six out of the 10 people in the central committee were people that we flipped from the MAGA movement and that we brought to socialism. And wow. a lot of the wrestlers that like uh, Eddie brought into that uh, movement that we were creating on, on campus, they were previous MAGA people. So we, we felt with experience mm -hmm. that that approach was the second thing that, that uh, the mm -hmm. left was getting wrong. And then yeah. the third thing that uh, we ended up noticing as we started rolling into communist spaces beyond the sort of democratic socialist movement is a very one-sided uh, look at U.S. history, which is mm -hmm. the U.S. to settler colonialism, slavery, genocide, imperialism, capitalism. And that's true. Uh, that is an integral part of the history of the ruling class and of the capitalist class and its state. It's been a murderous state that's genocided uh, native people that has enslaved black folks that, um, that has gone around the world conquering uh, and, and killing millions and millions of people. But that's not the whole picture, right? That's mm -hmm. if you only look at that, it's a one-sided understanding. There's also this other history of struggle against that part of America. And the way that I have been trying to formulate it since has been as the two different political projects of what MLK called the two Americas, right? There's the America that's delving in vast material prosperity, which is the America of the capitalists, and then the one that's delving in vast uh, poverty. And mm -hmm. those develop into two different uh, political projects. And to ignore the political projects and the history of struggles for socialism, of struggles for the abolition of slavery, of struggles for sexual equality, of, of a, a wide variety of rich struggles against capital, against the state, against racism, against sexism. To ignore that history is to, as I have been formulating it, is to really take up the ideology that McCarthyism promoted in order to fight communists, which it would mm -hmm. tell people, what, what would McCarthyism tell people? It would tell people communism is foreign, socialism is foreign. It has nothing to do with the American people. The American mm -hmm. people are on one side, Communism is on the other, and there's this unbridgeable gulf between the two. Mm -hmm. And that's completely wrong. And, and the whole communist movement at the time, what they were trying to show is that, no, you know, we have this very rich history of millions and millions of Americans fighting for socialism. And I saw a portion of the communist left accepting that narrative. And I considered that to be a mistake. And uh, the third sort of theme that leads us to, fund, to, to, to found our, our institute it's the idea that we have to recapture this positive history of struggle in the U.S. because mm -hmm. it serves as the historical legs for the movement today. Mm -hmm. And um, so those are the three major things that led us to fund our project, which are tied to the critiques of the dominant left that we saw. They mm -hmm. weren't anti-imperialist, right? They, um, they excluded a segment of the working class because they made the... Uh, 
the enlightened values that they hold, the precondition for talking to working class people. Mm -hmm. and they had a very uncommon understanding of U.S. history from the standpoint of what the communist movement has held. Um, the communist mm -hmm. movement has always held that the uh, that we have a rich history of socialist struggle that mm -hmm. could be carried forth and that to actually actualize the principles that the country is founded on, the right to life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, government of, by, and for the people, and right to revolution, you can't have any of that under a capitalist society. A capitalist sure. mode of life does not allow you to have any of that. In order to have those principles actually apply to all people, not just the white capitalist man, you need a socialist society. And that's what mm -hmm. the U.S. and the abolitionist movement and the suffragist movement has always done. It's taken those abstract principles, which the bourgeoisie needed to use in order to convince people whose interest was antagonistic to them. They needed to formulate these universalistic principles to bring other people on board into the struggle against Britain. And those principles throughout history, because they never fulfilled the right to life, liberty, pursuit of happiness or government of, by and for the people. Those principles throughout history were used by the masses in, in, in their struggle against the, the people who formulated them, against the capitalist class, the imperialists. Um, and that sort of calling out the hypocrisy, I consider to be very important still today because what it ends up doing is getting principles that the vast majority of American people, sorry, I have this thing that just popped up. The vast majority of American people already agree with. And it's yeah. very easy to show them how none of that is possible under mm -hmm. the society that we have right now and how mm -hmm. people who have who, who continue to use these concepts, they're really just trying to manipulate you. You know, how do you have freedom in a society where 70,000 are dying a year because they don't have insurance when there's more than enough medical equipment and resources to treat them? How do you have yeah. the right to life when, you know, X amount of people are in debt and, and, and they're basically in debt slavery, which has become a, 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 a phenomenon, especially since the financialization of our capitalism around the 1970s. How do you have the right to pursue happiness when you're constantly trying to figure out how the hell am I going to pay for bills? You know, or when you're working eight to 10 to 12 hours on a job that you hate, that you have no say over your work, who it gets sold to, how you do it, who you do it with, and uh, where everything that you do is forced upon you by someone else so that you get a miserable, wa a miserable wage that allows you to sometimes survive, although in most, in every part of the country, a minimum wage job does not allow a family to survive. Even if it's raised to 15 bucks, in no part of the country can a working class family survive with that salary. So th this process, which in the Marxist tradition, the insensible and taking those which exist in a fragmentary and incoherent worldview and, and re-articulating them towards socialism, I think that it's something that the communist movement in the U.S. in U.S. history has been successful at doing and that it's abandoned when we just reduce the U.S. to the history of the capitalists and the state. Um, and so that was the third major thing that led us to, to fund the project, the a recapturing of the progressive, socialist, anti-racist, anti-sexist uh, history of struggle in the U.S. as a way to show the American people, as Cornel West uh, says, that socialism is as American as apple pie. America, of course, understood under that context, not under the context of like the state and the capitalist class. Well, thank you very much for that explanation. You know, one of the things that you uh, alluded to was the fact that there are a lot of people who were in the MAGA movement 
that were sympathetic to the messages of Marxism, socialism, communism. And there is data behind it. One of those um, exit polls that showed that those who were sympathetic to the messages that Donald Trump was saying were also, they were sympathetic to the messages that Bernie Sanders was saying as well. Right. So that being said, it's like, is it purely just racism, sexism, homophobia, xenophobia, things like this, or are they bypassing some of that in order to get to the material conditions that they want? Are they saying, you know what? I'm going to have to swallow that in order to get something better. Mm. And that's what it feels like that they were doing, but they were duped. They were hoodwinked. They were bamboozled by an oligarch mm -hmm. because I put Donald Trump in the same bucket as George Soros. They're the same person. And this is something I think a lot of people who are, who consider themselves to be conservative, who consider themselves to be MAGA sympathetic, that look, I understand that you want your material conditions to be better. And guess what? You deserve that. But don't listen to that guy because that guy is actually lying to you just like they all have. And so that's, I think, is something that we're trying to say. And even to the point where if we can get our voices to them, even through means of which somebody we may find reprehensible, if we can use them in order to give out the anti-imperialist and anti-capitalist message, okay, okay. It's just like, for instance, somebody prominent on the left will go on to Tucker Carlson's show and then talk about anti-war and anti-imperialism and move people to the left on anti-war and anti-imperialism, but then some people will go, See, you're a secret right-winger because you went on this show. But the thing is that what they don't want to talk about is Nomiki Const has been on there. Bernie Sanders has been on there. Dr. Cornell West has been on there. So are you going to call them secret right-wingers too? <laughs> See? And the thing is, is that sometimes we have to go into... We have to go into adversarial spaces in order mm -hmm. to move people because if you don't all you're doing is preaching to the choir there you go yeah and as somebody that grew up very deeply religious and literally having to go to people who didn't believe what we believed we always had to talk to people who disagreed with us and we were largely successful by one sympathizing and empathizing with the struggles that they had mm -hmm. and two being very objectively telling them what we knew to be the objective truth about not only what they believe, but what we believe and tell them this is what's really going on. And this is the answer to what you're looking for. Right. Because a lot of times, a lot of people will sit here and you know, there's a lot of people who are on the right that honestly think it's the blacks the foreigners, the queer people, the poors, 
there's always some person to demonize, but the one person that you don't demonize, or the entire people who they, the entire group they don't demonize, is the people that actually put them in that spot in the first place. And so that's something that a lot of people that that I think that you're doing very well, and that somebody like what I'm trying to do as well is to try to let people know, look, the people who you look up to on these ivory towers are actually the people that are repressing you the most. And those are the ones who you need to stop listening to. So Right, right. And and I, I mean, we say this all the time. First of all, I, I, I love the, the way that you phrase it as if you're not talking in adversarial spaces, you're just preaching to the choir. That's mm-hmm. on the, can I curse? I, I usually curse a little bit when I talk. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Okay, mm-hmm. that's on the fucking money. Um, mm-hmm. That's on the money, but um, yeah, it's 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 interesting because when you go into those spaces mm-hmm. and you you tell them, well, the the reply, the the answer to your problems is not Trump, it's the Democrats. You're not going to get them to get involved. That's why you need a a, a working class party, a working class socialist alternative, and you mm-hmm. need to just completely escape the the, the two party duploy. Because both of the parties work together in order to shaft the vast majority of people. And that phenomenon that you're talking about, people love to reduce it to just being identity politics. And one of the things we frequently say is that it's not identity politics. It's class politics from above. It's class politics from the class of people that benefit from phrasing the stuff they're doing as identity politics and not class politics. Insofar Mm -hmm. as they keep poor white people fighting with other people that have materially the same condition as them, they mm-hmm. continue to get away with what they're doing. It was just shafting everyone <laughs> around the world too, not just in the U.S. Around the world. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, these these ideas are basically at the at the core of, of why we founded our institute. And we tried to do something that, in, in terms of form, is itself um, str- new or, or relatively new, which is that we were open to. Um, engaging with certain forms of media that hadn't been done before. Like when we started, we started in part, we had our website, uh, we had our YouTube, but Eddie also started with TikTok videos. And I was like, what are you doing? It's like a dancing app. We're talking three years ago now, right? So the Mm -hmm. the atmosphere has changed, but uh, it was a dancing app at the time for like teenagers. And he's doing like Marxist theory videos and, and political analysis video. And he's getting hundreds of thousands of views that are just being ciphered into the project and into the website, into the YouTube, into the other forms of social media. So I realized that, you know, our strategy has to be cast the net as wide as possible, right? Engage with the people who are on TikTok. If you can elevate them to the point of like watching longer YouTube videos, that's a a step forward. If you can go from watching longer YouTube videos to reading our articles on the website, that's another step forward. If you can go from that to like them engaging with our theoretical journal of American Socialist Studies, that's another step forward. And if from that they can buy our books, which is a more theoretically comprehensive way of educating people, that's another step Mm -hmm. forward. So it's Mm -hmm. we've taken this broad net approach to socialist organizing and education and and political mobilizing and and political activism, which I think it's also um, the it's 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 also one of the reasons why. we've been able to develop the way that we have been able to develop besides also the ideas resonating with, with a lot of people. It's been the openness to not stay at the ivory tower as, as Marxist scholars have done to not treat Marxism as something that's 
like written about in order to publish in journals that make your article be behind a $45 paywall. You know, mm. I, for me specific, I'm still a scholar. I still try, I still write for, for those sorts of journals, but 90% of my activity is outside of that. And that's the activity I really appreciate uh, because it's the one that gets to the people. And as both a Marxist and as a philosopher, I see that as the essence of, of both philosophy. Uh, to me, the spirit of philosophy is in Socrates. Um, who was someone who was literally killed by the Athenian state for challenging the values that sustained what we now call the slave democracies of, of Greece, the values that considered the good to be identical with power, the good to be identical with wealth, the good to be identical with all these different values that were really just related to the, to the ruling class. He challenged those by just speaking to everyday people, citizen, non-citizen, uh, men, women. He spoke to everyone and he ended up getting killed for it. And that spirit of philosophy as necessarily public philosophy, as something that engages in a, in a critical public discourse, I see it recaptured in Marxism very easily. Of course, it's it's in the 11th uh, thesis of the 11th thesis on Feuerbach. Philosophers have hitherto only interpreted the world in various ways, the point, however, is to change it. Um, and, and that's what I see the spirit of both Marxism and philosophy having to be. It has to be constantly in the public. It has to be educating the mass of people it cannot be limited to writing articles so that 15 scholars that specialize in your area around the world uh, read mm -hmm. it. You know, you could still yeah. maybe do that. It's It plays a, some form of a role, but the important stuff is the stuff that you do that helps educate yeah. people. And that's what I try yeah. to do with uh, with the, the recent book, Marxism and the Dialectical Materialist Worldview, specifically mm -hmm. in the introduction, is I try to get the Marxist dialectical materialist worldview which has been obscured in a lot of academic writing and i try to show how a lot of the components that come together to form the worldview there's mm -hmm. common sense references to them and mm -hmm. I, I i try to instead of getting simple ideas and making them harder which is what academic philosophers and academic marxists do i try to get complex ideas and make them uh put them in a form that allows everyday people who maybe you're not that very well read within the Marxist tradition to understand those and to understand the relationship mm -hmm. that uh, that they all have to each other as an integrative uh, worldview. And then after the introduction, I end up developing the, the anthology, which is a collection of, of texts. It's the first time it's been done in the English language mm. where more than uh, 10 classical authors from the Marxist tradition are brought together in various texts where they are reflecting on what dialectical materialism, either as a, as a worldview or as a method is. Um, so uh, that's kind of the, the, the spirit of our project is, is educative, uh, but without losing the rigor of getting the stuff right. Um, so I, I don't know if you want me to develop a little bit more on, on the, uh, the content of, of the book or what, uh, how I formulate dialect, the dialectical materialist worldview, or if you want to move towards something else, I, I'd, I'd let you know before we started that I am a windbag, so be careful. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'm not the brightest bulb in the pack. With that being said, sometimes the things that we may say from a layman's perspective make lays over <laughs> some people's heads. Um, so one of the things that I, I find is that 
is when we speak in a plain way, one of the things I like to tell people, and I think this is really good because you guys are also on TikTok. So you explain this also in a very layman's term of way for people to understand is, and I like to tell people this is it's not your fault. You're poor. Mm-hmm. Especially, no, it's not your fault that you're homeless. It's not your fault that you are struggling to pay rent. It's not your fault that you don't have health care. It is not your fault. And I try to tell them that in a relative way. Because even still, you have to realize that you have the power to change it. It's just it needs to be done collectively. With that being said, when it comes to, for instance, things like dialectical materialism, things like that. What would that mean? What does that mean for people so that they can understand from a layman's term? Because some of us may understand, but some people would say, how does dialectical materialism, how does that translate to my rent being paid? How does that translate to me being able to get to and from work? How does that translate to me having higher wages and healthcare? Like, it's like, where is that? Where is that needle threaded at, so to speak? So if you can kind of expound on that just a little bit. Right. I, I think that is the question that uh, we have to be tackling because the objective conditions, I think, are there. Um, and in Marxism, we have this distinction between objective and subjective conditions. The objective mm-hmm. conditions arise in moments of crisis, and they basically relate to how messed up are things for everyday people. Um, mm-hmm. And are, are they willing to continue living in the way that they're living? And is the ruling class even willing to continue ruling in the way that they're ruling? I have argued in, in, in various presentations and in papers that the objective conditions are there. Um, people are very dissatisfied with the system. The conditions, when you, when you look at uh, their everyday life, they're experiencing what I've called a comprehensive crisis. It's not just mm-hmm. material, it's spiritual, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look at the number of people that have uh, depression and anxiety, the opioid crisis, the the levels of, of crime, those are all social ills that are a result of capitalism, right? So it's, it's yeah. a very comprehensive crisis. The ruling class is also not be not able to rule in the old way uh, because ruling for the U.S., which is a, an empire that has 900 bases around the world, is mm-hmm. uh, it's, 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 it's fundamentally, uh, you can't divide like foreign policy from national. Uh, domestic policy. And the mm-hmm. U.S. is not able to do abroad what it used to be able to do after the Soviet Union was was overthrown, where it, it didn't have a challenge from anywhere in the world, where it was just able to do at will what it wanted to do around the world, super exploit people and, and uh, extract resources from wherever it wanted to do so. Mm-hmm. It can't do that anymore. We, we are we're seeing a multipolar, a pluripolar, I think it's more correct, a pluripolar world emerging, and that's preventing the U.S. from winning some of its proxy wars. It's preventing it from being as successful as it could have been in it, in its regime change efforts. So in terms of the objective conditions, I see that all the factors are there. So what's missing? Well, it's the subjective conditions, the subjective factor. People can understand that things are fucked up. Uh, the ruling class can understand that in order to sustain things as they are, they need to change them. Um, but the ruling order is, as Lenin said, never going to fall unless it is toppled. And for it to be toppled, you need people who are conscious of the systemic character of the 
stuff that they experience on an everyday life and who are mm -hmm. organized and yeah. who are organized in, in such a way so as to be able to to tackle the fundamental core of the problem which is the system and so i, I that's the subjective factor and that's where dialectical materialism needs to come in um mm -hmm. that's how we end up educating people to see the world in a comprehensive manner in a holistic manner in a manner that sees the parts not as separated from one another um but as interconnected and in constant mm -hmm. movement and mm -hmm. that is itself the most appropriate way to understand the world concretely if you want to understand mm -hmm. the world correctly you need the dialectical materialist worldview and let me give you just an example okay. a common sense example would you consider that a boxing judge who gets to the fight on the 12th round would they be able to judge the fight correctly no they would have to be there from round one right because they need to see each round in connection to all the other rounds in order to then see the whole fight as something holistic and they need to see the, the how the first round develops into the second one and into the third and only then can they make an assessment about the whole fight right because okay. they need to see the development of the rounds the interconnection that each has to the other the interconnection that each has to the whole and the meaning that the whole fight gives to each round in a reciprocal fashion right mm -hmm. that's dialectical materialism that's what the dialectical materialist view tells you to do it tells you nothing is static everything is in constant motion everything is in a constant interconnected state to everything else the whole mm -hmm. reciprocally gives meanings to the parts which compose itself the whole and the way to understand this thing is through a what's called the the, the dialectical method of ascension from the abstract to concrete so this sounds just like in a nutshell a historical domino effect there's a historical character in it right when when we think yeah. about things historically we're thinking about them in process right yeah. um but but it's uh it's also um it's also about thinking about things in their interconnection how they're yeah. related to one another um it's about thinking the deeper you get into it, the laws that structure the change that and the interconnections which you see. And then in the in our tradition, it's uh, it's usually formulated as, as three abstract laws, the unity and struggle of opposites, which holds that no thing or process is a homogenous entity. It is always heterogeneous. It is composed of opposing things that are that are in a constant struggle and that that struggle, that contradiction is what propels movement. Uh, mm -hmm. It's it's got also the the law of the transition from quantity into quality. You know things can be changing little by little, and then at some point, boom, there's a break and something big happens, right? And mm -hmm. uh, that break happens at what we call a nodal point. Um, water uh, goes from seventy degrees, and it goes one degree down, and one degree down, and one degree down, and then it gets to, I believe, it's thirty. And once it hits thirty, it turns into ice. You're like, wow, how, how did that happen? So these phenomena happen, these laws of change happen in, in nature and in society and in human thinking. The other one is the, um, the negation of the negation, which holds that when these changes happen, it's not like the old just completely disappears. It, get it gets absorbed into the new. And in German, the word is uh, that's used is Aufhebung, um, which if you asked two different German people, one might tell you that it means canceling something out, the other one tells you that it means preserving it. And what it means in the dialectical tradition is both of those. It's that contradiction, which is that when something new comes about, it is a process of both canceling the old and taking a part of it and elevating it into the new. So 
these laws of change, which the first one, the contradiction one, is then concretized even further by Mao, who uh, depicts what he calls the particularities of contradictions. And, and those are categories that maybe we can get to them later on. But these laws of change are important to remember as we analyze the world. For instance, we started talking about, you asked me about the what led me to socialism and what led us to starting the Institute. And I developed three different flaws. Um, and I had mentioned uh, before we came into the show that I I've been developing this concept of the purity fetish as a way of thinking with one concept about all of these flaws. Well, let's look at what's going on when, when, uh, when the Marxists in the West, uh, the socialists or the left, reject socialist experiments abroad. What are they doing? They're looking at those socialist experiments and they're saying, well, China hasn't abolished the commodity form. They haven't abolished classes. They don't measure up to my pure idea of what socialism is. And because okay. they don't measure up to that pure idea, I reject it. Mm -hmm. The same thing with uh, with the, the approach to, you know, that part of the working class that supports Trump, um, which is not a massive part. We, we It's not a, a big part. It's the same as previous Republican candidates, just about 30% of Trump supporters working class. But that part of the working class, it's not pure enough for me to go and organize, right? And mm -hmm. so since it's not pure, pure enough, I don't go and organize. Um, the same thing with uh, US history. It's not pure enough and therefore I reduce it to one thing and I reject it. Mm -hmm. That is what I've been calling the purity fetish. And that is the epitome of an outlook which is completely missing dialectical materialism. And this mm -hmm. purity fetish in the way that it manifests itself in each of those conditions presents a fetter, it presents a limitation, a, a block, a barrier towards organizing for socialism and developing that subjective factor. If you go to working class people and you tell them, hey, we have to organize for socialism. And then they tell you, look, but the media and the schools have always told me that communism, every time it's tried, it's failed. And you tell them, mm -hmm. yeah, you know, it has, but we're going to be different. You know, it's it's been tried all over the third world and it's failed, but we, the virtuous West, we're the ones that are going to do it right. They're not going to follow you. Yeah, they have they have to be as, as as stupid as you to think that if something's been tried for 150 years and it's always failed, that now it's going to work. What, what's going to make it work? Right. So it it's not just that they're wrong about history because they don't have the dialectical materialist outlook, but that being wrong prevents them from organizing for socialism because it's very different when you approach working people and they tell you, hey, but they've told me this about socialism. And then you debunk what they have been propagandized to believe their whole life. And then you show them, no, 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 let's look at the successes of the Soviet Union, of China. Let's look at the successes of Cuba and of every socialist experiment, which has done tremendous things for its working class people and for its masses, mm -hmm. even while under the boot of hybrid warfare from the most formidable of empires, namely the, mm -hmm. the US and NATO and, and yeah. sanctions. Mm -hmm. So that's that's one area, right? We, we recognize mm -hmm. you to be more successful in organizing working people if you show them the success of socialism and if you mm -hmm. debunk the propaganda that they have been led to believe. Mm -hmm. Let's look at another area. If you don't Sorry. organize the Trump part of the working class, you're dismissing millions of Americans who would have potentially supported socialism. Yeah, it's true. How can you achieve socialism if you're, before doing anything, already saying, nah, 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 I don't want to organize these people, mm -hmm. right? That's again another area where the pre fetish—it's not just—it's it, yeah. it, it, not just wrong. It prevents socialist organizing. And the last one, U.S. history. If you accept mm -hmm. the narrative that communism is something foreign that mm -hmm. has nothing to do with the U.S., what working-class person is going to listen to? Especially in certain parts of the country where they're attached to 
you know, certain U.S. traditions. So if you tell them, no, 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 we have a very rich history of struggles for socialism here in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And that this history, you know, Bernie Sanders didn't come out of a void. We have a, mm -hmm. a history that uh, the president that you like the most, which poll after poll is usually FDR. Mm -hmm. Why why did FDR do the things he did? It's because it was a communist party with a million card-carrying members. It was a strong socialist party, a very strong labor movement. And there was a Soviet Union around whom he was in good relationships relationships with. So the the the, the best things that the, the the things that working class people in the U.S. appreciate the most, it's been a result of socialists. Mm -hmm. So are you going to tell me that we don't have a, a tradition of struggles for socialism? So again, yeah. these narratives, uh, these these attacks on on the different ways the purity fetish manifests itself, not only get you at truth, you engage with truth when you do it, but you also remove the barrier that that falsity presents in organizing working people. So mm -hmm. back to your, your key question, how does this help you in organizing people who are trying to deal with the difficulties that they have in their life? Well, first, because you have to let them know that they're systematic in character. It's not, as you, as you perfectly said, it's not them. And the bourgeois media wants them to think it's just them. It's they're the failures. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It's not them. It's the system, right? Yeah. But if you get there, you need to analyze. You need to be able to first formulate what the system is which requires this mm -hmm. dialectical materialist analysis. It's what Marx does in Capital. Mm -hmm. And you need to debunk the myths that they have been fed to believe about socialism by the media, the schools, and mm -hmm. basically mm -hmm. everything, right? the families and everything. And you do yeah. that by attacking the flaws that the current left has, which prevent mm -hmm. it from getting to working people. That's, I think, how the, the dialectical materialist uh, worldview should be used today. It shouldn't stay in books. If it stays mm -hmm. in work, we're not doing shit. It needs to get to working people. It needs to help working people understand their reality in a more systematized, in a more dynamic and interconnected manner. And it needs to help the people who are organizing for socialism, what's called in the Leninist tradition as the vanguard. And he, it needs to help them overcome the flaws that they have, which are also grounded on objective conditions themselves. We have yeah. a lot that is primarily, if you look at its class, let me ask you a question. If I say that the left is on one side and the working class in another, what does that mean about the left? What class composition do they have? That is also very true. Uh, that is something that those of us at RBN have spoken about. Uh, we There's a certain segment that we like to call the legacy left. And I, I actually spoke about this with Jordan Sheridan on Status Quo. And I said that there is a class divide even in this space where it is spoken about as if they're trying to placate to more solidly middle-class or affluent liberals. There you go. And yep. so, and, and looking down upon those of us who may be workers who don't have a more clear scope of what the left is or what socialist policy or democratic socialist or social de democratic policy is and so it's kind of interesting because this is why a lot of us tend to vote against or be for for i'm sorry be against our own interests because of this confusion but that confusion is not necessarily our fault 
that confusion is based on propaganda, i.e. brainwashing by corporate entities, corporate media, which are controlled by the oligarchs and the, you know, petty bourgeoisie that dominate not only our political institutions, but also our journalistic institutions as mm -hmm. well. Right. You know, you're getting at the... Oh, sorry, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, that you're, you're getting right there at a phenomenon that's called, um, that has been called by certain groups, uh, the Iron Triangle of the academia, media, and NGOs, which dominate the culture and the institutions out of which the left has been coming from. And yeah. that left, when you look at its class position, you said it perfectly fine. You, you, the middle class, right? And mm -hmm. the middle class is, is it's a sort of broader term for classes that include the professional managerial class, right? Mm -hmm. Which have a fundamentally different class position than the working class. There's some overlaps, yeah. but it's mm -hmm. fundamentally different. And the, the petty bourgeoisie, right? Mm -hmm. and, and this has been theorized since the 70s. In the 70s, uh, the concept itself of the professional managerial class, it comes from a, uh, a theorist, uh, Barbara and John Aaron Reach. Um, mm -hmm. It's been, it, it, it was kind of left behind in the past and it gets, it comes back with uh, Catherine Liu. But uh, there's also at the same time, Gus Hall writing about petty bourgeois radicalism. And Gus Hall was the, uh, the, the chairman of the Communist Party at the time. Um, mm -hmm. And that class position is the objective condition which drives the ideological flaws, i.e. the purity fetish, which pre prevents this left from doing what history has given it the task of doing, which is organizing working people for socialism. And then mm -hmm. when you look at these institutions, the academy, the media, what sort of left, what sort of socialism does it want? It wants a purity fetish compatible socialism, a socialism which might be critical of consumer capitalism, which might be critical of, of capitalism in, in various areas. But every time that capitalist imperialism wants to bring out the drums of propaganda in order to legitimize a war against Vietnam or to legitimize a war against Cuba or whatever country it is that's outside of the sphere of influence of empire, this left accepts that narrative. And it's oh, what, what the CIA, oh my goodness. it's what the what CIA agents themselves have called the compatible left. It's what Michael Parenti calls uh, left anti-communism. That's the left that predominates in those spaces. There you go. It's <laughs> yeah. the left that yeah. predominates in those spaces, in the academy, yeah. in the NGOs, and the media, which dominate mm -hmm. as the key institutions, which then out of that out, out of which then the culture and the outlook, the purity fetish outlook of this left comes from. So it's yeah. it's a matter of changing, coming to self-consciousness. You mentioned it before, I think we got into the live, of getting to that moment where you're coming to Jesus, right? That's a nice theological way of putting it. It's a moment of coming to self-consciousness about the fact that you look around in your socialist organization and it's a bunch of PMC people. Where are working class people? Yeah. Where's the working class? Yeah. Where is the working class? And, and so some yeah. of them, they've had to redefine what working class means, make it more abstract so that their class position fits in it. <laughs> but you need to have yeah. that self-consciousness of the fact that that objective class position determines the yeah. sort of consciousness and the world outlook that you have. And it determines yeah. that fetter that you have towards organizing workers. And then also the yeah. institutions that you're coming out of, which have been promoting since the 50s, at least, this compatible Marxism. If you go to yeah. the academy, as I have, and and, and you, you ask that you'd say, I'm a Marxist. Uh, who can I work with? They're going to send you to the guy that focuses on the Frankfurt School. And what is the Frankfurt School? As Gabriel Rockhill has shown in, in his work, it's the form of Marxism that was promoted by the State Department, by the CIA, 
by different capitalist foundations like the Rockefeller Foundation, the Ford Foundation, because wow. it was anti-communist, because it was pessimistic, because it said that working class people can no longer change the world because they've been absorbed into capitalism. And now they're because they have TVs and watch football, they can't change the world and and they fit nicely within the, the, the apparatuses of contemporary capitalism. That's the Marxism that they want from you. And that's the Marxism that predominates in a lot of the Marxist spaces in, in the left. So it's it's a matter of changing the subjective conditions of the left itself, its mm -hmm. ideology, its world outlook, removing the purity fetish, adapting a, a, a constant, uh, consistent dialectical materialist framework. Um, but also that requires an objective assessment of their objective conditions for them to realize that we're not really part of the working class. Some are. Um, mm -hmm. If we look around, not many workers here, it's a lot of students, a lot of professionals, teachers, da, da, da. Um, what has this, what role has this played in influencing my ideology, the way I think about the world? And so those changes need to happen in order yeah. for socialists to be able to organize working people mm -hmm. and bring them into a movement for socialism. Yeah. Without that, you know, and, and at, at the core, at the educative core is the dialectical materialist worldview, which we have in every... Mm -hmm way possible tried to disseminate well uh really what you're trying to do and what many of us are trying to do is give the left teeth again right we're trying to give the we're trying to put the claws back on because without the actual workers because as we know so the one of the definitions of socialism is workers owning and controlling the means of production emphasis on the word workers if you don't have people who are at the very bottom of the totem pole like the like the people who clean the bathrooms the custodians like the people who make your coffee like the people who serve you your egg mcmuffin if they do not have this knowledge and this power then guess what you don't have shit because there are so many more of them than there are of the intellectuals or the academics within this space. And we need all of us to come together. And one of the things I was thinking about, and I had this as a recent reading in, in Parenti's book, Dirty Truths. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this book, but it's a really good read. I'm still reading it on my channel. But there's four different consciousness that he actually speaks about. And if you don't mind, if I can read this really quick. Okay. So uh, this is out of his chapter four. Uh, and the part one is, is uh, it's called, chapter four is called political theory and consciousness. And it talks about a false consciousness. And he talks about uh, the pre-sentence says, in fact, no overt conflict exists between rulers and rule. This may be because of no one or more of the following reasons. One, conscious satisfaction. Citizens are content with things because their interests are being served. Then he goes to the next one, apathy and lack of perception. People are indifferent to political matters, preoccupied with other things. They do not see the link between issues of the polity and their own well-being. Three is discouragement and fear. People are dissatisfied, and I see this a lot. People are dissatisfied but acquiesce reluctantly because they do not see the possibility of change or they fear that change will only make things worse 
or they fear the repression that will be delivered upon them if they become active. I think we're in that right now. And then we're also in false consciousness. People accept the status quo out of a lack of awareness that viable alternatives, like what we're trying to do, exist and out of ignorance as to how their rulers are violating their professed interests or out of ignorance of how they themselves are being harmed by what they think are their interests. Mm -hmm. So it's like these four different things. And from what I see, especially as number one, I am not college educated, never stepped foot in a college except for to do a tour when I was in high school. And I am living in poverty, literally as we speak. And so because of that, I see with my eye, all the people, all my contemporaries around me, that especially in the final two, with the discouragement and fear and false consciousness, we have this all up and through this bitch, <laughs> so to speak. So the thing is, is that from what I see is the education work and for for especially when you were referring to the dialectical materialism and letting people know, number one, you have more power than you realize. Number two, you actually have the power to change your world. It's just we have to do it collectively. I think that's one of the key things that we have to do, especially in order to truly not only grow the U.S. love, but to strengthen it as well. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a variety of, uh, of reactions to the everyday pain that people feel, um, yeah. in the, in the, maybe I, I shouldn't reference this, but, uh, you know, it's one of them is nihilism as, uh, as, as Parenti noted, another one is skepticism and, uh, acquiescing to the way things are, or this idea that, uh, they kind of reminds me of an argument for, for God, um, that uh, the medieval philosopher Leibniz, uh, uh, no, not medieval, the modern philosopher Leibniz uh, would give was that um, when people would ask, well, why are things so messed up? If there's a God, he would say, well, you know, it's messed up, but it's the best of all possible worlds. And that, that last point that uh, you gave from Parenti uh, that relates to how people do not think that there could be something beyond what they currently have that's better, um, mm -hmm. it reminds me of that. And again, if, if the left continues to think as it does, most of them, mm -hmm. that yeah. socialism has always failed, that socialism has always ended in, in, in a tremendous failure, mm -hmm. if it continues to accept the propaganda that it's been fed uh, from yeah. the capitalist ruling class at home, it's not going to be able to point to people and say, look, there's not only an alternative that's possible in my head, it's mm -hmm. realizable. Look at these examples. Look at how working yeah. people's lives have been improved by socialism. So it's yeah. it's a variety of, of reactions. And, you know, I, I think that the first thing that I notice, I, I teach in the in a school that's in the poorest city in Illinois. So all of my oh. students are poor as hell um, and diverse type of poor, white poor, black poor, brown poor. And the first thing that's like, aha, is once you historicize their everyday condition, once you tell them, look, Capitalism has not been here always. <laughs> you know, class society is itself a new phenomenon in, uh, mm -hmm. in in the very long history of human history, and capitalism it's itself it's relatively new. It's two three hundred years old. And do you think 
that it's going to be eternal? You know, don't, don't you think that the slave owners of the South thought that slavery is going to be eternal and the feudal lords, didn't they think that that uh, they're, they're, they're going to have their serfs forever and um, in the antiquity form of slavery, didn't they think that they're going to have their form of slaves forever? No, these are historical societies that are constructed by human beings yeah. that are going to change. If there's anything that's fucking certain is change and that this is going right. to change and that if it's going to change, it's going to change with human beings, not through one individual alone, but coming together and changing society. And it's the vast majority of us that are getting screwed. You know, we, yeah. I know I criticize the, the, the PMC left, but they are themselves getting uh, not exploited, but they, they're not benefited by the existing order. That's why they fall into positions of of a certain form of, of socialism. Uh, the problem is that they can't be the heart of the organization. The heart has to be the working class. But you can include professionals, right? You yeah, can include uh, the PMC and parts of the petty bourgeoisie into socialist organizations. They just can't be the heart of it. Because then their class interest uh, mishmashes with the actual interests of the working class, um, well, or if part of it, they have to be sort of class traders, like like I am. I have everything. All objective forces are pulling me towards that sort of left, and it's yeah. a constant process of saying no, no, no. I'm not going to fall for the temptation of you know doing these little things that you want me to do. Of course. Well, one of the things that you're referring to is something that I said, and I said this in a different way, is that this movement needs to be led by the most disenfranchised people within our society. That being those of us who are queer, those of us who are black, those of us who are brown, those of us who are disabled, because the people who are the most disenfranchised know exactly what the underbelly of capitalism is. In fact, Actually, let me, I, I wrote this down because I wanted to state this as well. Um, and I also wanted to get into uh, some things about Cuba, if you don't mind answering for me as well in a little bit. But I said, I, I'm just going to read the entire thing I said. I said, I wanted to talk to you, especially as someone who is from Cuba and a Marxist, talk, because talking to a capitalist Cuban and about Cuban policy is limited in scope. Speaking with a Marxist, socialist, communist about capitalism is better because anti-capitalists are victims of capitalism, just like black people are victims of white supremacy and women are victims of patriarchy. When you're the victim, you have insights on the dark underbelly of the system you're repressed under. If I wanted to know more about the wealthy, I'd ask someone in poverty. This is why I find it better and more productive to speak with you. And so basically what I mean is when it comes to the ones who lead the movement the most, you have to speak with the veterans who have seen the worst of it all. We're not going to put a general in the head of the army that's somebody that's never seen any action. We're going to put the people who saw the most action that know what to expect at the front. We're going to put them in the leadership position because they are the ones that have seen the most action, that have endured the most action, that have been able to maneuver through the perils of this class war. And so that's one of the reasons why I think that what you said kind of meshes well with what I think as well, as far as the most disenfranchised being the leaders of the movement, 
because we were the ones that were screwed over the most by capitalism. Right, right. And um, if uh, if you engage with the early works of Marx, one of the reasons why he comes to postulate the proletariat as the universal emancipatory class is because mm-hmm. within it, all the oppression uh, is accumulated well beyond any other particular class in that time in the, in the development of, of capitalism. He ends up mm-hmm. uh, not uh, rejecting this idea, but uh, having a more economic understanding of why the proletariat is the revolutionary class. It's because it's the one that is exploited uh, uh, the most and the one out of whose work surplus labor is uh, results and out of that surplus labor, then profit is, is realized. So it's at the heart uh, of, mm-hmm. of the capitalist economy. But I think you're absolutely right that uh, the, the way we think about like the leadership role in the Marxist-Leninist tradition is as a vanguard, right? With, which means the most advanced, consciously advanced detachment of the working class. And detachment has been the word used. I don't think it's the best word because it comes. what comes to mind is like a break with the working class. But it, it's what it really means is the people within the working class who are most conscious about the systematic character of how everyone else within their class is getting screwed. Um, So those are the people that end up occupying leadership positions because those are the ones that can bring others into that position. They're the ones that can elevate through education. And then the ones that they elevate can then elevate the ones that are a little bit more backwards. And and that process of a constant elevation of consciousness and of everyday life of ethics and of, 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 of your passions and your feelings is a process that's integral to the struggle for socialism. As far as Cuba, that's a very good point, you know, because the the, the Cubans in Miami or the ones in Tampa or the few that still uh, are, are in New York, there's less and less. But um, those Cubans have the loudest microphone. Those are the ones that are portrayed by our media. It's different around the world. But by our media, they're, they're the ones that are portrayed as the Cubans, the opinion that they hold or the opinions that Cubans hold. And it I'm in Orlando, any- so yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. It couldn't be any farther from the truth. And the rest of the world knows this. And in, in, in this issue in, in particular, the issue of Cuba, um, it's very interesting because it's it almost seems to be a uniquely American blindness uh, because the rest mm. of the world for the last 30 years in a row has voted in the uh, United Nations uh, General Assembly to lift the blockade on Cuba. Um, the rest of the world, even, you know, like Canada, that's, you know, it's still a capitalist uh, uh, state that participates uh, in imperialism. Um, they do not have the same hatred uh, that the U.S. state has for a country that 90 miles away from its south coast was able to develop socialism right under the nose of the empire. Um, so it's a unique uh, position that we have as as Americans. I don't think that most working class or poor Americans are really that involved in in Cuban politics to the point of saying uh, of being able to authoritatively speak about it. I remember one time when I was a, a kid. Um, it was one of the few times that I'd ever gone to Disney. Uh, the lady that was uh, getting us into the um, what's this movie? The one with the shark, Jaws, the Jaws ride. She was getting us into that was the, universe. That's universal. Universal. Okay. Yeah. yeah. She was getting us into the Jaws ride, and um, she asked me where we were from, and we said Cuba. And she's like, "Oh, I've never heard of it." <laughs> I was like, "What the hell are you talking what? about?" What? <laughs> so did you not hear of like the Cuban Missile Crisis or any? But the, the point is that I, I think most poor working class Americans don't 
don't give a shit about Cuba enough to fall for the propaganda that that is uh, coming from like the South Florida Cubans. But the uh, with that is is the fact that the vast majority of Cubans in Cuba are very much pro-revolution. And if you look at the the votes that they had to develop a new constitution, which just from our standpoint, we have a fucking constitution from 1776. It's a 250-year-old constitution. That's absurd. Yes! The Cubans just developed a recent constitution, and the way they did it was through um, people organizing locally, postulating things that they would like to see. And it, it, it took a long time, but there was thousands of meetings around the country and within parts of the Cuban diaspora, who then the people decided what was going to be on the constitution. And then the people voted on that constitution and they voted 90 something percent of them in the high nineties, which compared to us elections, uh, 30% of people vote locally around 60. Uh, it got higher the last election, but around 60 usually is the amount of people that vote in, in, uh, national elections, um, in, in, in presidential elections. I mean, so 90-something percent of the people voted for this constitution that they crafted, and 90-something percent of them voted in favor of it, which is a yeah. constitution that expanded the, the, the Cuban revolutionary process. So that's where the consciousness of Cubans are at. Now, are there objectively difficult conditions in Cuba? Yeah, uh, primarily because of the blockade. The U.S. prevents Cuba, which is a, a, an island that's limited in resources because of its size, because of 200 years of colonialism that forced monocropping on Cuba and that it quite literally destroyed 75% of its arable land. You know, 75% of the little bit of land that it has cannot grow uh, uh, things successfully because of the monocropping that was imposed on them for because of colonialism. So you have a country that's dependent on trade and then you have a country that is 90 miles away from it. That's the biggest power humanity has seen that is preventing that country from trading with anyone else in the world. What sort of conditions do you think you're going to find in Cuba? Of course, there's difficulties. There's there's lines and and uh, there's certain things that are missing because the Cuban government just can't get it. Um, but no one starves in Cuba. No one starves in Cuba. What, what do you think would happen after, after, for instance, the collapse of the Soviet Union when uh, 50, when the calorie intake of Cubans dropped by 50% because of the lack of food? What do you think would have happened had Cuba been a capitalist market economy? Who would have gotten the food? Well, the people who could pay for it. There would have been a fucking famine. Uh, people complain about uh, this thing that Cuba gave, La, uh, La Letra. Um, it, it was a card that uh, would ration food for everyone. And uh, uh, people complain about that, but that's the only way that they were able to ensure that no one starved. They were able to ration food so that everyone had enough to survive. And it's in different periods in, 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 in Cuba's development, it's been the same thing. And you know, it's it's the country that produces more doctors per capita than any other country in the world. The countries in second and third place are like still half of what Cuba does. It's the country where the teacher to student ratio in the classroom is the lowest. So the teachers are able to pay more attention to students than anywhere else in the world. It's can I can I stop you right there for a second? That means a lot to me. Part of the reason why is because when I was in 10th grade, I was in my algebra class and I was failing. And math just wasn't my strong suit. It still isn't really. But the school saw that what I was going through and they took me out of that algebra class and put me in a different math class 
but the size of the class was about 12 students. Mm. Very small number of class classmates I had. And I went from getting D's and F's to getting A's in algebra because of the attentive nature that my teacher had mm -hmm. because she did not have to focus on that many students. Right. So that being said, that alone, plus from what I heard, the literacy rate in Cuba is what, over, well over 90%? There's no illiteracy. While in the US, uh, you know, places like Cleveland, I've heard that up to 60% of people can't read past the fifth grade level. In Cuba, everyone still reads. Everyone is uh, literate. Um, everyone is able to engage in philosophical discussions. That's one of the, if you look at the vloggers and stuff that go to Cuba, one of their biggest surprises is that you can walk down the street and talk to someone about Socrates. You can walk down the street and talk to someone about Marx. And it's insane. I mean, my, my family, uh, my father, for instance, he studied law. He had nothing to do with philosophy, but... Uh, in, in order to, the same way that we have certain BS general requirements in the U.S. in order to get your degree, um, mm -hmm. their general requirements are uh, reading through uh, the old Soviet manuals. At least it was at that time. Um, and because of those engagement with the Soviet manuals on dialectical and historical materialism, and, or they were called Fundamentals of Marxism-Leninism, so it was a very comprehensive manual of, of Marxism, um, today, uh, me, who works on this very obscure German uh, philosopher named Hegel and how his dialectic gets uh, uh, re reincorporated into Marxism, I can talk to my dad about all of those uh, things because of that education. So it's, it's a different approach to learning where um, learning is itself appreciated. And that's something that I'm, I'm teaching at the university level. And one of the hardest things is uh, removing the feeling of learning as something that you do for something else. Doing learning as something that's a uniquely human thing that is enjoyable for its own sake. Learning is one of the most beautiful things that human beings can do in, 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 in their life. And mm -hmm. that's something that uh, it's systematically prevented from happening in, in American education. And it's systematically incorporated into Cuban education. And, and part of that is the teacher to student ratio. Part of that is the socialist uh, culture, that education is not commodified, healthcare is not commodified, nothing is commodified. So if you want to be the sort of person that studies, you can study all the way through a graduate program for free, not have to worry about the debt that, for instance, I have. I have $60,000 in debt. I'm one of the ones with not that much debt. And I had a full scholarship program. I got a 4.0. I never got even an A- minus in my undergraduate studies. I had a, I had went in with a sports scholarship program and an academic, so I had everything that you can get, and I still finished with sixty thousand dollars in debt. Um, wow. Which you know, as a person that just started a, a family, it's you know, how am I going to pay for that, right? Uh, so those sorts of worries do not exist in Cuba. There's material necessities because of the blockade, but the level of peace that people can live with, knowing that you know, for instance, ninety uh, percent of them, around ninety percent of them, own their homes, so there's no rent that has to be paid. The 10 or so percent that doesn't own their home, their rent is merely a, a, what Fidel called a symbolic pay, which is like 10% of their paycheck. Right now, I uh, pay 95% of my paycheck towards rent. Um, I survive basically off of fucking food stamps. Um, <laughs> that wouldn't, Me too. That, that doesn't exist in Cuba. And that's why today there's more Cubans going back to Cuba from the U.S. than the ones that are coming and staying. Um, Wait, because, 
I'm sorry, go ahead. Finish your thought. No, 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 go. I want to cry. <laughs> because you just said, and you know how when somebody tells you something major and it just goes right over your head at first, but you're like, you're like trying to catch it again. You're like, wait, 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 wait. What what did you just say? You just said that the home ownership rate in Cuba is 90%. 90%. Well, it's around the same thing in China as well. Yeah, I heard about that in China. And then on top of it, rent is 10% of your income. 10%. Lord, if my rent was only 10% of what I get. <laughs> That's why it's so Oh, my gosh. Like, this is some of the stuff that I want people to know. Because, like, for instance, does homelessness exist in Cuba? No, it was abolished after the revolution. Okay. Um, everybody eats. You don't have, you know, uh, you know, extreme poverty. And here's the crazy part. A lot of times people will go, well, they're poor in Cuba. And it's like, relatively, and it's only because of what the United States and the West is doing to Cuba. Let Lift the sanctions on Cuba and see how far they can go. Oh, there uh, in during the Obama years, uh, because of Pope Francis, he, he basically begged Obama to lift the blockade. He didn't fully lift it, but he lifted some of the more substantial parts of it. And Cuba, uh, from 2014 to uh, before when when to when Trump got elected in 2016, where he brought everything back, uh, Cuba had the highest GDP growth in the region. Um, it was growing at an incredible. Uh, uh, I think it was like 6%. Uh, and that growth, unlike how it takes place in the U.S., where it's just in a, in a small amount of people who own capital, that growth was spread out across society. There was a bunch of uh, new, uh, you know, Richard Wolf is someone that likes co-ops. There was a bunch of new cooperatives, uh, cooperative enterprises uh, that were arising. They were able to have, uh, you know, small private businesses. And, and they were able to loosen up because the stranglehold that the U.S. had on them was loosened up a little bit. Um, so if... The, what Cuba has been able to accomplish, the for instance, the if I can pull up uh, some statistics here, uh, the they abolished the literacy. Uh, they're ranked first in the highest number of teachers per capita with, uh, with the student rate, which I mentioned. Um, let's see. Uh, all, all citizens have the possibility of undertaking studies that would take them from kindergarten to a doctoral degree without spending a penny. Infant mortality has been reduced from 60 per 1,000 live births, which was the rate before the revolution, to 6 to 6.5 every 1,000 live births, which is the lowest in the whole fucking hemisphere. Life expectancy before and after the revolution increased by 15 years. What? And again, these tendencies, you see them in Cuba, but you also see them in China. And you also yeah. see them in other socialist projects. It's, it's socialism. It has the highest number of doctors per capita. It has undeniably, it's it's reported over and over again by international um, assemblies. It has one of the best healthcare systems, if not the best healthcare system in the world. Social yeah. security covers 100% of the citizens. Um, there's no commercials in Cuba. I just put out a statistic through our Twitter the other day. We spend yeah. 
four fucking years looking at advertisement. Yeah. The There's no commercials in Cuba. In Cuba, instead of commercials, they have public service announcements that concern health, education, culture, physical education, sports, recreation, environmental protection. Can you imagine that? Instead of spending four years wasting your time looking at shit, you're probably not going to buy. Maybe you buy it. I mean, I don't know. Instead of doing that, the commercials that you get are like educating you and making you better and keeping you aware about what the hell's going on in the country and outside of it. Um, discrimination against women was eradicated. 64% of technical and scientific workers are women. And the vast majority, last time I checked, of politicians are, are women. Um, it is perhaps the most democratic society on the planet. Uh, it's, it's got a participatory and protagonistic form of democracy where there's community participation at every level. Um, mm -hmm. Parties, you know, are not functioning in, in the way that they do in the U.S., where they're mere mouthpieces of one section of the ruling class and money ends up determining. And this is proven by by Yale studies. Even the Ivy League studies have confirmed it, that money equals election. 95% of the time, you know, and how they still have the audacity to talk about democracy is beyond me when even yeah. their own <laughs> leading institutions are confirming that what you have here is an oligarchy or what Lenin yeah. called democracy for the rich. Um, it, of course, it sends doctors around the world. What is the USN? It sends bombs. Um, for instance, in the during the beginning of the pandemic, uh, Cuba uh, was sending around the Henry Reeve Brigade. Henry Reeve was a, an American who actually fought for the Cuban War of Independence. And this Henry Reeve brigade was fundamental uh, in, in the early stages of, of fighting COVID, uh, both in China and, and in Europe. Italy was one of the countries that was hit hard, and there was people there. It was in Brazil and in various places. And it uh, it got, um, there was a big movement to nominate the Henry Reeve brigade for the uh, for for the, the Global Peace Prize. I forget what the title of the prize is. Um, and the whole... Cuban society is very environmentally conscious. So they're they're growing up in a society that uh, has been ranked um, amongst uh, the rate of its development to its environmental uh, sustainability. It's got the highest in the world. So it's one of the most, if not the most environmentally sustainable country on the planet. And that's Cuba. That's Cuba under the pressure of hybrid warfare, uh, which is a variety of things from 900 or 600 or something attempts on Fidel's life to the spread of African swine flu in order to destroy uh, their, 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 their food, their livestock, to um, you know, different forms of, uh, of, of radio communication propaganda that the US has spent more than a billion dollars, both in Miami and in Cuba in order to promote lies about the government and to rile people up against the government. I mean, the intentions are, are very clear. Uh, there's this uh, one uh, uh, person who has uh, studied this. Uh, his name is Tracy Eden. He has found that between USAID and the NED, the two fronts of the CIA, more than a billion dollars has been sent to these uh, uh, groups that are anti-Cuba, that are both in Miami and in Tampa and Cuba. And, uh, you know, one of the by any means necessary strategies that, that I have talked about, not just the uh, attempts on Castro's life, but um, Operation Northwood. In 1962, the U.S. was considering a quote-unquote communist terror campaign in Miami and in various other Florida cities along with Washington in order to then blame the Cuban government to mobilize the American people against Cuba so that they can legitimize a war against Cuba. Let me repeat that. The U.S. wanted to bomb American cities with American citizens to blame it on Cuba in order to promote 
to manufacture consent so that people can then support their waging of a warfare against Cuba. Um, their intentions are very explicit. Lester Mallory, who was the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Inter-American Affairs, wrote in 1960, quote, every possible means should be undertaken promptly to weaken the economic life of Cuba. If such a policy blockade is adopted, it should be the result of a positive decision which would call forth a line of action which, while as adroit and inconspicuous as possible, makes the greatest inroads in denying money and supplies to Cuba to decrease monetary and real wages to bring about hunger, desperation, and the overthrow of government. So what do they do? They create the blockade to create objectively difficult conditions for Cubans. They spend billions of dollars into an opposition so that the objective, objectively difficult conditions that they created are then fermented through the people that they funded in order to overthrow the Cuban government. And what have they been able to do in the last 60 years? Nothing. Nothing. They have failed. The greatest accomplishment that the Cuban revolution has is that it even exists. That is itself a, a, a monumental David versus Goliath victory. Yeah, definitely. You know, and one of the things that I also took note of, and this was recently this year, a couple months ago, in fact, was that the family codes in Cuba were recently voted on and passed. And as somebody that's queer, I'm telling you right now, to find out that Cuba is more socially progressive than the United States and has been for a long time, that blew my fucking mind. I was like, what? You mean to tell me that I can get with my boyfriend, go down to Cuba, get married, and we'd be a legally gay couple? And if I wanted to adopt, I can do it free and clear, easy? Like, what? Are you kidding me? And you got people telling me, oh, well, Cuba, you want to go to Cuba? I'm like, yes, yes. <laughs> if I could, look, I would jump on a Frontier Airlines where they have them damn uh, uh, plastic chairs on the plane just so I can fly my ass down there, get me some free health care, and be able to be who I truly am without having to worry about all this repression on me within Cuba. On top of that, as far as relations, because I know there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of colorism within the uh, Latin Latino diaspora that, you know, as far as Cuba goes, how do they address that? Because I know there's a lot of Afro-Cubans there as well. And there are really indigenous Cubans there. How does that how do how do how did they really tackle that or is it still in a process um i would say that it's still in a process but the comments that are made from like the black panthers that have gone to cuba have all been along the lines of there's no racism here um or at least in light of the racism that you experience in the u.s that doesn't exist here um it's still a process though i mean it was two three hundred years of institutionalizing slavery and the ideology of racism that legitimizes slavery. So it's obviously going to take a long time. But I would say that Cuba is today the most progressive country on the planet in terms of social values, um, in terms of uh, questions of, of sex and, 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 and race and, and, and gender and all sorts of questions. That they, they are by far the most progressive. Um, in, terms of, in, in terms of racism, it's also very much diverse. You know, you talk... Uh, there has been a shift over the last few years 
uh, within the ruling class in the U.S. Um, yeah. towards a way of presenting itself as more progressive uh, yeah. by diversifying faces in high places and then calling yeah. that liberation. Um, <laughs> yeah. We've labeled that phenomenon under a term that I know the RBN folks don't like, which is wokeism. Um, when we say wokeism, we're not referring to the thing that you guys are pointing out when you criticize wokeism. We criticize the people that criticize wokeism like that as well. Um, we think that's a mistake. But it, we need a concept to think about this new phenomenon that capitalism Tokenism. developed. Tokenism, Tokenism. people have, have used woke washing. Um, there's, we have to, the concept, in terms of the concept, so like the, the thing that's going on, we both agree on that. The term yeah. is where people get, eh, you know, should we use this term? Should we use another term? Yeah, but it's the a perversion of the actual wokeism. Yeah. Right. The concept mm -hmm. is the essence of the matter. And, and yeah. what the concept shows is a reality that there has the U.S. and both in terms of consumerist capitalism and in terms of imperialism, it's had to integrate the symbols, the slogans, the aura of the progressive struggles of oppressed and marginalized communities in yeah. order to diversify faces in high places and present that itself as liberation, which is not only not liberation for working people, but it's also not liberation for those oppressed and marginalized communities that they are tokenizing, as you correctly just said. So yeah. this has taken an indispensable role in the US's discourse to legitimize imperialism. And with Cuba, one of the things that they tried to do in the, the July and, and, and pre-July 2021, um, mm -hmm. so in July 11th, there was uh, these protests that occurred in, in Cuba there weren't many people, it was maybe within the whole island, a thousand people, um, but they really blew it out of proportion using fake pictures from pro-Cuba rallies, using pictures from other countries and spreading a bunch of lies over Twitter. And it was the whole SOS Cuba thing. I, I saw that, yeah. At the time we debunked all of it, but uh, they were able to legitimize that discourse amongst uh, well-intentioned liberals by focusing on the fact that the artists that were being repressed, which they weren't being repressed, but there there were artists like uh, the San Isidro movement that was taking money from the NED and USAID, and that when they come to the US, they meet with Trump and the most far-right elements of US politics. They were using the fact that the artists were black in order to weave a woke or tokenized narrative against Cuba to say that they're oppressing specifically black and brown people when it wasn't true at all. So that component of appealing to those sentiments that the vast majority of American people have come to accept because of struggles, that component, we've called it wokeism, and it, it was used against Cuba. It's been used against uh, Venezuela, specifically with the uh, LGBTQ uh, struggles. It's used against China. Notice how every time they talk about the Uyghur, they talk about Uyghur minority, right? Mm -hmm. They talk about the Uyghurs as a marginalized group. They always emphasize that, especially on the, the left wing of empire, the liberal side. They did the same thing with Cuba. Um, so the narrative that has been coming out of the pro-U.S. Cubans has been one that tries to paint Cuba as racist, as sexist, as and Cuba's not perfect. But that's all bullshit. It's all bullshit. And the people and artists that they're pointing to, they're not getting repressed because they're black. The vast majority of Cuban artists are black. They're getting repressed because they're getting money from the NED and you say from the government that has been trying to overthrow the Cuban government for 60 years. 
the fact that one they're even alive is a miracle two that they're not in jail is a miracle they're just roaming around and you want to talk to me about repression when people who are getting money from the biggest enemy of the state are just continuing to do what they want and you want to talk about repression but that component of making sure that they add they're black they're brown that mm -hmm is showing itself in the discourse against Iran, in the discourse against China, against Russia, against every country that's outside of the sphere mm -hmm. of influence of American yeah. imperialism. And mm -hmm. we have to think about it, because if not, then our critique is one-sided. Our critique mm -hmm. is one-sided. And I know that you guys think about it. You guys criticize yeah. it all the fucking time, and I see you criticizing it. And, uh, you know, like uh, uh, un Unholy Rome, I don't know if that's his, his name, mm -hmm. he just wrote something about wokeism, and, you know, the spirits are up and, and stuff, but I didn't feel personalized when he put that tweet out because the thing that we critique as wokeism, you guys do it as well. Yeah. And the things that you guys are critiquing, uh, that you're, the, the sort of wokeism that you guys are attacking, we attack it as well, which is yeah. the from the right that say, oh, the problem with wokeism is that it, it represents uh, marginalized communities. Mm -hmm. That's not the problem with wokeism. The problem with wokeism is that it, it says that that's liberation. And it's not because it leaves behind poor and working class people from those oppressed and marginalized communities. And that, mm -hmm. it that narrative in order to legitimize capitalism and imperialism, that's yeah. the problem. It's not the, it's not the, mm -hmm. the, the, the diversification, the most diversification that you get in, in terms of representing people in media and in, 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 in sports in in academia and politics is Cuba. And that's a socialist country. So I'm not against that. But representing people in a way that so that when they go out into the world, they see that people like them are also represented in the things that they watch. There's nothing yeah. that I'm all for that. I'm against mm -hmm. the imperialists saying that that's liberation because that's not yeah. against the struggles of the working class and poor. It's against the struggles of the same marginalized and oppressed communities that they claim to have liberated because they have diversified the faces in high places. We call that phenomenon. We've gotten shit for calling it wokeism. We use that concept because it comes from a German philosopher that teaches mm -hmm. it, um, and he calls it wokeism, and he develops it in, in a similar form. Mm -hmm. We've considered, you know, talking about woke washing instead. The problem with woke washing is that it depicts an action, and we want mm -hmm. a component of a larger system, and that's why the ism in mm -hmm. I think it's important because it's mm -hmm. a systematic thing that's going on, not just a series of disconnected actions mm -hmm. like woke washing would entail yeah. but right. i mean there's a better word we'll we'll switch it because we're talking about a difference in terms not in concept of course yeah um we have to work on that and, and what we would like to call it rbn but that you you touched on a really important piece you know as far as that's concerned and i just want to thank you for also shedding light on the fact that they take the actual true concept of being woke and then perverting it to their own ends and using diversity as far as identity, but as far as our material conditions, they don't think of diversity. They don't think of improving our material conditions for those of us that may be trans or non-binary, for those of us that may be black or brown, for those of us that may be disabled, for those of us that may be women or trans women, for those of us that are parts of these, 
is saying, look, I have an imperialist that looks just like you. And it's like, <laughs> wait a minute. That's not what we meant. <laughs> it's right, like, right, right. So I, I appreciate that you guys, you know, point. It's the meme. It's it's the meme. You, you know, the meme that's yeah. like, can we get liberation? Well, we have liberation at home. Liberation at home. Here's an imperialist that, that <laughs> identifies as you. Um, and yeah. that, that has to be criticized. And I, I think that people understand that it has to be criticized. But Twitter is such a, it's so easy at having... Um, at, at fermenting splits between people who are agreeing in substance on the same thing, but who are using different words. And, yeah. you know, a similar thing I think happened a while back with, and again, there's a lot of nuance that has to be put here on the table because both sides were, um, they weren't homogenous. They weren't saying this, they weren't appealing to the words that they said that they were appealing to in the same way with the patri patriotism debate. For us, when we talked about patriotism, all we referred to was having pride in the positive history of struggle that working black and poor people in the country have waged. Mm -hmm. So if that is what patriotism was for us, most of the people who said that they were anti-patriotic, they agree with that. They agree that you have to go back and look at the history of the Communist Party, how it fought against racism. You have to go uh, and look at the history of the MOK uh, movement, the civil rights movement, how it transitions into class struggle in its second phase. You have to look at the, the Black Panthers. And you have to look at all of that in a positive light as, yeah. you know, it, 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 important struggles that we have to go back to in order to go forward. Mm -hmm. That process, we called it patriotism. And <laughs> we got lumped into a bunch of other people that were like putting pictures of Andrew fucking Jackson on on their Twitter and stuff. And it was it was so annoying, but it, it comes again from abstract thinking, right? If you see a thing and you disconnect it from everything else and you pass judgment just on how that thing exists statically and without the webs of interconnectedness that it exists in, you're not gonna pass appropriate judgment on it. So if we use the word woke or if we use the word patriotism and you just judge it as you've seen it in other places, you're not gonna be able to pass appropriate judgment on the thing that we're saying. And you're gonna end up calling names to for people that are agreeing in substance on everything that you yourself agree with. And that's a problem that everyone has on, on the left and that it's promoted by avenues like Twitter and, and, and Instagram and Facebook and these avenues that promote those sorts of poking the bear strategies that end up pinning people who agree on the fundamental things against each other. But do you think that this could be part of a ploy by infiltration in order to keep the left weak so that we do not threaten the power of the capitalist class. We'd be stupid not to think that. That's that's what they've done forever. That's what Cointelpro is. Get into organizations, promote divisions, promote the extremes, and get people who agree on the most fundamental things to disagree on the basis of things that are formal that are just like that we talked about the term versus the concept get them to fight and, and disagree and break ties with each other because of a term when they agree on the concept of course it's been done forever and we'd be really stupid to look back at our history and be able to give great lectures and presentations and write articles about how Quinto pro destroyed the black panther party or how they functioned within the communist party or within different black radical organizations and then today think oh no it's all gone away it's all gone away. It doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Of course it exists, especially in these platforms that are literally controlled by the imperialists, the yeah. oligarchs that are 
the, the most advanced part of capital today, one of the most advanced parts of capital. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons why I think it's important uh, if you guys have not liked the stream and if you haven't subscribed yet, this is why I always talk about, you know, make sure to, to like and subscribe whenever you tune in to us, whether it's me, whether it's Midwestern Marks, RBN, Savvy Sabs, whether it's the Indie News Network, whatever you tune into that is anti-capitalist and anti-imperialist and they continuously push anti-capitalist, anti-imperialist uh, thought as well as ideas and policy to make sure to do that because you know the algorithm just doesn't like us. It's like, for instance, you know, your channel at Midwestern Marks should be way bigger than what it is, but because we're being throttled, because we exist within this capitalist system and it's a threat to the ideals of capitalism, you guys are throttled, you're repressed. Same thing with my channel, same thing with many of us also within these spaces. This is why I always say to like and share among your people and among your friends because and even people who you don't like because that's something that i think that's very important because for 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 all we know i may not be able to explain something that well to someone but carlos may be able to explain it in just the right way that pierces their thought and go wait a minute oh and that's the beauty of being within this space. It's like different ones. Take your pick. You can have me, you can have Carlos, you can have Eddie, you can have Rome, you can have Savvy, you know, you can have Kim Brown. See, take your pick. See, there is choice. <laughs> so that's one of the, th man, this conversation is so rich. Oh my God. Uh, do you have a couple more minutes that I can still talk? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I wanted to comment on what you just said and Mm -hmm. Brother, it's so fucking infuriating to see yeah. Vooch, Vouch, to see <laughs> the Prager yeah, yeah. people, to see Jordan Peterson and all these idiots getting millions and millions of views when if any one of us just sat down with them for five seconds, we would completely embarrass them by debunking <laughs> all this. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that we're like shadow banned and, and it's and it's so undercover that the thing that our enemies could say is that, oh, that's just a conspiracy theory. Who would want to shadow ban you? Like they do with our TikTok. Why would the state want to ban a TikTok that's getting at hundreds of thousands of people with the truth about the war in Ukraine, about the proxy war against Russia? Why would the state want to do that? I don't know. Maybe because there's NATO operatives working within TikTok who are the ones handling what content gets viral and what content gets banned. Um, you know, it's so it's it's so infuriating. And uh, we end up watching these videos on streams. And we we just saw a few days ago a PragerU video. And it's it gets you very near to like a fucking brain aneurysm. It's so stupid and so easily debunkable. But it gets millions of views. And it, it's got these nice graphics. And I was commenting on the fact that like, you know, it, it's they say communism uh, was trying to rule the world and then they turned all the landmass in the earth red and then they did this and they have amazing graphics because they have the money, right? And they have the, the stooges willing to do it because they, they get jobs in, in, in those fields and um, we don't have the money, we don't have the algorithms on our on our side, but we have the truth and we have the numbers to get 
uh, that truth to the people, which are the vast majority of people who are getting screwed by the same system. And uh, who I think that in, in a in a one-to-one -one conversation um, with nuance and without condescending attitudes towards working people, they'll accept what, what we have to say because it's true. Yeah. I just, you talked about the, you know, the U.S. proxy war uh, and this video, actually each one of those dots represents a hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> and so this is how much aid that has been going to the country that, that starts with the U that rhymes for propane that we have been giving. And so this it also, it also rhymes with cocaine. If you want to get uh, Hunter Biden involved, riding in by train high on <laughs> cocaine. <laughs> Sorry. Let me, let me stop. But you know that, and if you look at the military spending, it's going up. Mm -hmm. It's literally increasing. But if you look at humanitarian, it's pretty much stagnant. Government slightly going up, but the military spending for it is jumping. So you can't say that we have an economy that is not just a war economy because this is literally a visual representation of what we're doing. And this doesn't even include what's going on with Saudi Arabia and the proxy war in Yemen. Mm -hmm. So on top of the other wars that we have going on simultaneously. So but by this very notion, we have to get our minds wrapped around that we live... <laughs> I'm going to sound funny here, but we we literally live in a world that's ran by supervillains. <laughs> it's true. And they will not stop until they own everything, including us. And I think that's something that has been brought out, especially in Parenti's book, Dirty Truths, because basically that's what he spells out here is that they won't stop until they own everything. And the people who don't want to own everything and make sure that it's disseminated to all people are the governments that are typically repressed, that are put, that have sanctions put upon them. For instance, you have Venezuela, you have DPRK, mm -hmm. you have the People's Republic of China that they're trying to go after, you have Cuba, you have so many different countries that are literally just trying to say, you know what, we don't need to own everything because we're because there's not a small number of us that are better than everybody else. And I think that's a mental anomaly, or not even anomaly, that's a that's a mental flaw a purposeful mental flaw that we have, especially here in the West, that you have certain people who think they're so much better that they have to own everything. So therefore they deem it as their God-given right to acquire this billions. And one of the things that I'm gonna be talking about next week on my show is there was an article that actually came out in 2012 that shows that there was a study done that wealthier people tend to have less compassion than people who are poorer. Mm -hmm. 
And so I, I'm going to be talking about that next week. So, but it just goes to show that really it is it is to our benefit, not just to us as humans, but to the animals and plants and on, on this planet to get rid of this cancerous system that is consuming us and consuming our world. I agree. Um, it's it's uh, quite literally to, to bring back uh, Rosa Luxemburg's phrase, it's, phrase, it's, it's socialism or barbarism. Um, mm -hmm. and, and the most uh, the most evil form of barbarism because these people have shown willing, they, they've shown over and over again that uh, they prefer nuclear Armageddon, they prefer the destruction of the planet and of human life over losing their global hegemony. So um, if that doesn't push us to fight, I don't know what will. Um, I want yeah. my son and, and his kids to grow up in a in a planet that's habitable and in a world where people and planet are put above profit. So that drives yeah. me uh, every day that I that I wake up uh, to to in some form feel like I'm contributing to the social struggle. And um, I, I, I think it should drive every sane person to do something similar. You know what? Man, I, because you, we only touched on two out of like eight questions that I wanted <laughs> to ask you. <laughs> Yo, I need to have you back on because there's so much more questions that I want to ask uh, regarding Cuba, regarding uh, some of the things that you know notice about China, Venezuela, and I think one of the problems is there's not enough people talking about the benefits of these countries right. and their successes when it comes to socialism mm -hmm. being put out there. Because you can find any article, any video on victims of communism or, or I defected from Cuba and I suffered and here's how it was and then they plaster a whole bunch of bullshit mm -hmm. without actually showing the actual facts. And so I would love to have you back on to talk more about these things to show this is what they achieved. This is how they achieved it because we got to know the how in order for us to be able to know, okay, so we could do the same things here mm -hmm. so that we can actually change things for ourselves. Right. And so I would love to talk about that more with you definitely likewise man I'm, I'd, I'd be happy to come back and uh it's it's such an important task to show the successes of socialism and to debunk the big myth that we've been breastfed uh, our whole life which is that socialism didn't work because as yeah. michael currency says uh, the fact is that it did and it did for hundreds of millions of uh, of people and um i think that the insofar as we sustain the purity fetish at least in in that field as as well I mean, listen to what the democratic socialists, how they speak about uh, about socialism. Listen to, to Bernie. Um, oh, no, no, no. I don't mean socialism like Cuba, or China or the, the USSR, blah, 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 blah. I mean, I mean, uh, Scandinavian countries. That's the socialism. They don't have socialism. That's the problem. They're in a position in the global economy where they benefit from imperialism. The little yes. bits that the working class there has, has also been because of labor and communist struggles. It wasn't the capitalists who, who, who gave them the things, but they still benefited from the super exploitation and the extraction of resources from the global South and East. So it's, yeah, we want real socialism. And, and, and for that, we need to let the people know 
the tremendous advances that socialist countries have abroad have made for people, not for profit, for people, not for capital. Um, and, and to show them how these advances were made in spite of the tremendous warfare that the U.S. empire has waged against them. Yeah. And, and just like some of them will say, well, social democracy, maybe like Germany. What do you mean, Germany, the same country that now has a poverty rate of over 16 percent compared to our 11 percent here in the United States? That Germany where they're literally having revolts in these socially democratic countries because they have capitalism and they're now growing in their poverty. Their, their energy prices are skyrocketing now. Their food prices are skyrocketing. You mean those same socially democratic countries? Because that's the thing that I'm just like, because at first, when I first started to venture towards the left, and I know that this is a whole nother conversation that we can get into, and I got to get going soon. But when I was a social democrat, because yes, that's where I ventured from, I literally had communists come into my mentions and say, you know, you're on the right track, but let's talk about communism. And that word was like, no, nah, man, that, 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 we, I can't. No, I'm, I'm just like, I'm just like somebody trying to hide, hide their, their body. I'm like, no, we can't talk about that. That's wrong. My mama said, Uncle, Uncle Sam said no. And then next thing you know, I started talking. Now I'm like, yes, let's have it all, you know? <laughs> because the thing is, what I'm finding out, it, it's, it's just like, it's just like the whole colorism thing, right? Those of us who are of a darker hue like myself, we were taught stay out of the sun because if you get darker, then you're just worse off right but then we realize well we need the sun in order to have vitamin d now mm -hmm. i know that you need to have you know sunscreen and protection and things like that because of the uv and things like that please don't come for me in that but i'm talking about in a healthy way getting the healthy absorption of sun even if our skin gets a little darker that's okay and so it's the same thing it's like wait a minute now you're being found to be this light you're absorbing this light. Yes, you're becoming a little bit more richer in color, but at the same time, that richness in color is not a bad thing. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I'm realizing. And even though I don't call myself a communist yet, I still am sympathetic and empathetic to what communists want. I call myself a socialist because I honestly do agree with the tenets of socialism. And I really want it to happen. But I also see that, you know what? I might be a communist too. But I just haven't embraced the, the, the title yet because I need to learn more in order to be able to do that. See what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, the, the, the concepts or the terms are themselves quite ambiguous because uh, if, you, if you look at Marx, uh, the person who developed along with Engels scientific socialism, the concept of communism appears in like a in like three different ways. It appears as you know this higher stage, this end goal of a classless society, stateless and classless society. It appears as as a, also a lower stage of communism, which is a distinction he brings up in the critique of the Gotha program, which is uh, basically the dictatorship of the proletariat. There's still classes, there's still a state, but it's wielded by the mass of people, by the working class, in order to suppress 
the exploiters and the oppressors of the old order. And then uh, there's also phrases in in both the Communist Manifesto and in the German ideology in early works where he talks about communism being the real movement of history that abolishes the current state of things. And, yeah. um, you know, so uh, there's a lot of communists that they talk about, uh, they say they're communists, but they appeal to the long distant communism and they use that long distant communism to reject China and Cuba and all these different things. I, um, while not rejecting that long distant idea, um, I, I embody communism more so as the real movement of history, which means that I have to look at all of these struggles as a process uh, and that uh, the river is only crossed as the, the Chinese saying goes one step at a time and that I, I can't uh, condemn China or Cuba or the DPRK or Vietnam or Laos for not having socialism of the 23rd century in 2022. So especially when the left here hasn't done shit, <laughs> when it hasn't done anything. Damn. With that, I got to let you go. But you just you hit the hit and hit, uh, you hit the hammer on the nail with that one. Uh, where can they find you so that they can hear more from you as well? Uh, thank you. And it's, it's been a, a very enjoyable conversation. Um, you can find me in, in Midwestern Marks. I, I, I do videos. I do interviews on, on our YouTube. Uh, you can also uh, check out our website, MidwesternMarks.com. Uh, you can check out my book, Marxism and the Dialectical Materialist Worldview, uh, which is on the MidwesternMarks.com slash books section of our website. Uh, you can also check us out on social media. Um, uh, and uh, I personally don't have any social media, so I don't, I mean, I have like a, a personal Facebook that uh, if you want it. I might, uh, you, you can friend request me there, but um, I had someone tell me that I should make a Twitter. So I might make a Twitter maybe uh, for, for next year or something, but yeah, just check me out wherever you can find uh, Midwest remarks. All right. Perfect. Thank you so very much. I also, all the links and including the link tree is also in the description below for anybody who's interested. And yeah, I just really appreciate and was honored to have you on to have this really nuanced, in-depth conversation. And I am excited to have you on again soon. Thank you, James. I'm excited to come back on and I'm happy that uh, we had such a great conversation. Mm -hmm. Carlos Corrido, everybody. Thank you so much, Carlos. Have a great one. Thank you. Solidarity. Thank you. Solidarity. Okay, so I got to make this quick because um, I have to go to RBN really quick. We're having Shama Sawant on, on RBN Live. So that's why I got to get my crazy fluffy behind on over there, over there. So I just want to look get some chats in as well. Hello to all of you who are also in the chat. Uh, there were some comments that stood out to me as we were talking. Unfortunately, all, I can't. Focus on all of them because number one, I'm pressed for time. Number two, there's a lot of comments. So, but please forgive me if I don't get to your comments or get to say hello to you in the chat. My apologies. It's just time is of the essence here. So, SG says PMCs are also feeling the pinch. So, they just want to fix that. Basically, I see what you mean because it's like, okay, we're feeling the pinch now. We just want to fix what's wrong with us. We don't want to go any further. And it's like, no, why? Because if you go further, that means that you're going to be benefiting those of us who are the most disenfranchised. 
And it's kind of this mindset where it's like, oh, I just want to take care of myself. Uh, I don't really care too much about them. Or I do, but they're not my priority. And it's like, well, why not? So I, I definitely appreciate what you said there, SG. Thank you so much. Danny says nearly 100,000 people in the USA will die from diabetes next year because we are blocking effective new medicine from Cuba. And this is one of the perils of the blockades because you can literally get some of the best medical technologies from Cuba in order to help those of us here in this country. But because of the hate of socialism, our nation has kept this blockade up to the detriment of its citizens. So thank you very much for that, Danny. Creative Experiment says, CIA hired Cuban rappers to promote the USA freedom propaganda. And that's not out of the ordinary. Uh, you also have had the FBI that has basically kept their eyes on different artists that were sympathetic to socialist, Marxist, and communists here in the United States. Particularly people like Aretha Franklin was even being watched by the FBI. So because she was friends with people who were part of the civil rights movement, that was really a largely anti-capitalist movement. So that was that's what not outside of the realms of possibility or the realms of reality what's going on and here in the country. But Chico Ron, what who is a JB member? Thank you so much for the super chat. Thank you so much for that as well. Also, good to see all of you here in the chat. Uh, <laughs> this You guys are funny, too. I love y'all. Y'all are great. But thank you so very much to Carlos for joining me today. I will be doing more readings of, from, of Dirty Truths by Michael Parenti, as well as reading the autobiography of Asada Shakur, who is in exile in Cuba right now, just to let you guys know. So I will be reading from them a little bit later this week as well. And I think I might end up having a, I think I'll end up having a extra stream this Thursday. So stay tuned for that as well. Did you guys like the stream? Did you subscribe yet? Okay, good. Thank you. Thank you to all the patrons on Patreon, Coffee. Thank you to all the members as well. Thank you to everyone who sends me mutual aid via their different various platforms. Uh, if you guys would like to give a little something, if you have an abundance, if you would like to share, then those links are also in the description below. And please, and if you're in the comments and you're watching this on the rewatch, tell me your thoughts about what Carlos said. What stands out to most to you and about dialectical materialism? You know, at what, how, how do you understand it? And so, yeah, also make sure to get his book, you know, the Marxism and the Dialectical Materialist Worldview, an anthology of classical Marxist texts on dialectical materialism. You can also go there. And here is their link tree. 
in the chat if you guys don't get to it later. So, other than that, I want to thank you for tuning in. As always, water your plants, water yourselves. Leave the world better than you found it. Smoke them if you got them, drink them if you got them, you know, if you got them. Watch something funny. Laugh. Have joy because you know joy is revolutionary. Mwah. Forehead kisses to every single one of you. And just talk to other people. Learn to understand them. And use what you've learned to teach them so that they can have something much better. Because like Captain Planet says, the power is yours captain planet he's our hero gonna take pollution down to zero he's the power magnified and he's fighting on the planet side